Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The FT. Hello, and welcome back to FT Science with me, Andrew Jack. Clive Cookson, FT Science's usual presenter, is in Brussels at a European Parliament hearing on research infrastructures, and he'll be joining us on the line shortly to tell us more. Also on the show, we discuss the value of university education in preparing the scientists of tomorrow, fresh after a new round of budget cuts in the UK. I still think that a university education is of the highest possible value if you want to get a career, if you want to get ahead, if you want to to show that you have something that the others don't, if you want to stand out in a crowd. So I think it's incredibly valuable to do a university education. And from Science magazine, we have a report on the environment and disease risks. By some estimates, 70 to 90 percent of disease risks are probably due to differences in environment. Joining us this week, we have, as usual, Diana Garnham and Clive, who should be on the line now. Hello, Clive. Hello, Andrew. So let's kick off the show with you, Clive. So you're chairing this rather unusual gathering on so-called research infrastructures. What does that actually mean? Yes, it's an unusual experience being both a guest in the European Parliament in Brussels and a host because I was chairing this morning's parliamentary hearing on health and medical research infrastructures. Now, this is in the context, the political context of the preparations that are already underway in the European Union to decide future priorities, funding, arrangements and so on for research in time for Framework Program 8, now FP8, which is going to spend tens of billions of dollars on research across Europe, doesn't start until 2014. But arrangements have already been made. And it's very clear, it was very clear at this morning's hearing, that one of the weakest points for research in Europe is transnational infrastructure. And this hearing focused particularly on health and medical research and 10 different infrastructures. It's a strange use of plural infrastructures, but that's the terminology that's used here, so I'll I'll stick with it. There are 10 health ones, and we focus particularly on three, which will give a flavor of what we're talking about. One is biobanking and molecular resources research infrastructure, the BBMRI. That's the sort of thing where millions of people are giving samples of blood, urine, and so on, and and they're being analyzed for the genes and compared to lifestyle to try and tease out the environmental and genetic factors that cause disease. There are lots of national biobanks. The idea now is to knit them together with common standards across Europe. Another one we talked about, which is perhaps more surprising, is the European research infrastructure on highly pathogenic agents. Those are the most nasty viruses, Ebola, Marburg, and so on, which may arise in some pandemic. And there are some containment labs across Europe, and the idea is they should work more closely together. And then, perhaps more familiarly, is the European clinical research infrastructure, coordinating clinical trials across Europe. 
So there's a big political push here. They're going to have lots and lots of money to spend. Already under the current program, there's um, increasing funding, for example, on sort of trans-European clinical trials. How much of an atmosphere of concern is there given the budgets and the austerity across Europe, though, that some of these longer-term projects might suffer? I think there's a feeling that they will suffer and that, if necessary, funds should be taken from more traditional research projects for specific groups in specific places for specific purposes and put into these transnational sort of infrastructure projects. And another issue which did come up at the hearing in terms of funding is how these um, publicly funded infrastructures are going to work with industry, above all, of course, the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. Uh, it's clear that the that industry is going to um, make great use of their findings. Obviously, the researchers hope that industry will help to fund them, but there were several people at the hearing from companies, Roche, Mirieux, Pfizer, who clearly were quite suspicious of the terms under which they might take part. And do you think, did you get a sense overall that there was perhaps there were one or two particular structural barriers that policymakers really need to focus on to, to encourage that new vision? Yes, there are. There are very different ethical and legal standards across Europe for a start. Those need to be harmonised. There are all the structural barriers that still prevent European researchers moving from one country to another. They're a barrier if you're having someone working on the big high-security containment lab in Lyon who wants to come to Britain and work. There, there are lots and lots of things, like pension arrangements, all the sort of structural problems that mean that we don't really have a European research area. They apply particularly here. And still a cultural system, as you say, in which the bilateral relations very often between, say, the UK institutions and those in their US remain, for whatever reason, rather more tempting than a sort of pan-European collaboration. That's right, yes. I think our people still do tend to look across the Atlantic first and across the North Sea and Channel second. That's, sorry, that's a wild generalisation. I should perhaps row back a bit on that. And I think amongst younger researchers, that, that's less true. I don't know what you think, Diana. Certainly for the patient groups, the building the relationships across the European networks of patient groups has been coming for 20 years or so. Most of the rare disease groups now do try and work internationally in Europe, but they have found the different ethical and legal standards and also the professional qualification standards being an inhibitor on clinical research. So it, it is about positioning Europe to be able to compete with the Far East and uh, the US, isn't it? And uh, there is a common interest in doing that. Yes, I, I agree. And several of the speakers were making the point that if Europe really is going to have what's called a competitive bioeconomy, a globally competitive bioeconomy about 2020, which is one of the aims of the union, um, these sort of barriers must be overturned. Well, from the uh, long-term future of research to the short term, Clive, I know you have a lunch to head to, so thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Goodbye, Diana. Let's move on to university education. Last week, the government announced that funding for higher education is to be cut by 40% over the next four years. 
Although no specific figures were given, the Treasury did release a statement saying the Department for Business Innovation and Skills will continue to fund teaching for science, technology, engineering and mathematics subjects. Diana, how important is university education for ensuring our future science? Well, a university degree in a science subject is the most usual route to get into science, but it's also now increasingly common for people who work in the technology industries because you need a lot of science and technology to just simply to relate to other clients and to other businesses. I don't think that's likely to change because the practice of science is actually getting more complicated. So while the experience route through to a science career will always be there for some, I think the the science degree is going to continue to be the traditional way in. Though you do wonder if perhaps there needs to be an approach beyond the conventional, traditional approach of university teaching, do you think, in this new era? Well, I think that is possible and we need to see universities innovate a little bit. I think we'll probably see the growth of four-year degrees. We'll probably see something in the way of some degrees delivered partly close to home, partly part-time and then partly in a more research-orientated environment. And that's certainly the sort of model that's developed in the U.S., is developing in Australia and in other countries. So that that might work. And you were perhaps somewhat reassured at this perhaps earmarking, ring-fencing a little bit of science technology compared with perhaps arts, humanities, other areas of university teaching and research? They haven't ring-fenced. They've said that they will continue to fund. So we don't quite know how that's going to pan out. I think we have to acknowledge that the science technology degrees are more expensive to teach quite often and because of the need to relate to the research environment then there is a there's a cost there that has to be delivered and there may be an awareness of that the need for that to be funded but we haven't seen the detail yet. But you sense overall the scientific community is perhaps cautiously relieved a little bit more optimistic than they were a week two weeks ago? Uh, Yes I think that we were actually a little bit surprised at uh, the light touch to to science and technology, I think we have put up a very good case. The community worked very well together. We understand impact much, much better than we did um, 10 years ago. And we've made the case. Now we have to deliver, of course. And you were recently at a, an award ceremony precisely around some of these issues. Tell us uh, what you were doing. I was. Last month I attended the Graduate 100 Awards. And this is an, an award for both where graduates want to work and the the best graduates graduating that year. And there's also an advanced category of those who we should be watching, the ones to watch. Interestingly, at this event, um, GSK was the company that won both the science and the engineering award for the place science and engineering graduates wanted to work, which v- really did surprise pretty well everybody there. But it was also fascinating for the fact that these were graduates who didn't want research careers. They were desperate to get out into the workplace. And I was chairing the uh, judging for the science graduate and they were all very clear what made a science graduate work ready. But before the ceremony started, I spoke to Bill Mitchell, who's head of computing at the Chartered Institute of IT, about why he thought a science degree was important for a science career. Um, And I have to apologise for this clip because we were just finishing dinner and the band was just about to start. Right now, there's an awful lot of debate about whether or not university education should be widened in terms of participation or whether people should be doing apprenticeships and I still think that a university education is of the highest possible value if you want to get a career if you want to get ahead, if you want to to show that you have something that the others don't, if you want to stand out in a crowd so I think it's incredibly valuable to do a university education 
Now, Penelope Hingley was the winner of the science graduate year. Penelope graduated with a first in pharmacology from Liverpool, but she had spent an enormous amount of time really focusing on what other skills she needed to be attractive to an employer. I spoke to Penelope after she'd won the award and asked her to talk about the value of the teaching staff that she'd encountered at Liverpool. Because the academic staff were at the forefront of research, it was very valuable for us because we were getting first-hand knowledge back from them. And they were very enthusiastic about their subject, and I felt like that enthusiasm was quite infectious. But at the same time, um, a few of the teaching staff in particular were very interested in the general personal development of the students, and they tried to um, make us understand that you know science just can't be pinpointed into the particular research and development part of it, although that's an incredibly important bit of it. There's also other avenues that you can explore depending on what kind of personal attributes you have. Reminded there that research at universities aren't purely about study in well, libraries. They, the winners were definitely partying at that stage. I thought Penelope's comments were very interesting because she really did understand the value of the research, but she also understood the value of the discipline of science and where it could take her. And clearly she was surrounded by teaching staff who didn't try and channel her just into a research career, which is unusual. And a reminder, and perhaps she's going to be an increasing debate now with this focus on value for money and students paying larger fees about the demand for quality of teaching as opposed to quality of research driving the faculties in universities. Absolutely and the breadth of the teaching, the environment in which they're likely to be finding themselves, the preparation for work. Um, A lot of people are talking about what courses turn out a work-ready graduate and I think that Penelope had got that and her teaching staff had really worked at that. And even though she'd got a first, she had not come under pressure to abandon that desire to go into the workplace. And a reminder really actually about the that real mentoring role of teachers to insp- and researchers to inspire the next generation as much as any purely pedagogical skills perhaps. That's absolutely true. And when I met Penelope's uh, tutor, Jeff Edwards, He was very clearly inspired by meeting so many young, enthusiastic students year on year. So now we can hear from Jeff Edwards, who's the senior tutor at Biosciences at the University of Liverpool, who agrees that research is a major part of the quality and relevance for the teaching staff. I consider both to be equally important. I mean, I do research and I also teach students. But I think it's vitally important that we give students the attention they deserve and need uh, to build up their their portfolio so they can compete effectively in the job market. And I see a, a, an environment where research is going on as informing the teaching so the students are given the, 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 the information they need to be, to be competitive. I mean, I think Jeff puts that very, very well. Universities have always argued that teaching and research, and research is in, inextricably linked. It's a fundamental role for what they do and to therefore tip the funding one way I think we have to be worried about it interfering with what's a sort of unseen knock-for-knock system in reality in the university departments and how that unravels as you focus on the research and you take the funding away from teaching and as I understand it the universities don't really know how they divide the the staff time in that, that level of detail. Well thanks very much Diana. Now to our regular contribution from Science magazine. While environmental factors are probably much more important than genetics in explaining the majority of risks of developing chronic disease, 
epidemiologists are increasingly using genome-wide association studies, triggering a debate over the need for a more comprehensive analysis of environmental exposures. Over to Robert Friedrich in Washington. Genome-wide association studies have allowed scientists to identify genetic associations with a particular disease. But Stephen Rappaport says that by some estimates, 70 to 90 percent of disease risks are probably due to differences in environment, not genetic factors. Rappaport researches exposure biology at the University of California, Berkeley. We don't really know what the main risk factors are coming from these environmental exposures. We want to adopt more discovery-driven methods to at least tell us what the main players are. To do that, Rappaport argues in a perspective in the latest issue of Science for a Genome-Wide Association Study, or GWAS-type approach. So with GWAS, you're not saying that I'm going to look at this handful of genes because we've hypothesized for various reasons that they're going to be important. I'm going to look at all the genes and let the data tell me which ones are really important. The obvious environmental exposures to look at include radiation, infections, drugs, pollution, exposures that can even alter the genome. But Rappaport argues that we need to look at everything in the environment, both inside and outside our bodies, including food, hormones, even lifestyle. So we're interested in a much more global view of exposure, saying that the human body is bombarded with chemicals from both outside the body and from within the body, and we really want to get a handle on what they are, do these GWAS-type studies where we look at cases and controls and see if we can find some particular exposures that are associated with the effects or the diseases. The reason this hasn't really been done before, says Paolo Venus, an experimental epidemiologist at Imperial College London, is because the technology to do so is still fairly new. Now we have new technologies which are called omics collectively, which allow us to look into chemicals in the body and characterize a little better what we are exposed to in terms of hazardous substances. But, Venus says... These omics, such as metabenomics, transcriptomics, and proteomics, had methodological problems and so weren't very accurate in the recent past. So now we have the technology, but we need to set up studies, very accurate studies, on human populations exposed to different agents. So we need to create consensus. Consensus, Vines says, that's needed to support the technologies and collaborations to study the effects of the environment on disease risk and not just continue studying genetics. But both Rappaport and Vines say that getting this kind of project going will be difficult. In part, that's because there is no focus on a particular disease, like cancer, heart disease, or diabetes, diseases that researchers can get funding to study. Right now, we have great genetic factors that we can look at, but we're still relying on whether people tell us what they do in order to get the environmental factors. Again, perspective author Stephen Rappaport. But it just turns out that genetic factors aren't the prime players in predicting chronic diseases. That's the problem. So clearly, the weak link in the system now is the information about exposure, and it's not going to be easy or even possible in most cases to find these joint effects of genes and environment. So we need a much more comprehensive view of the chemical environment inside the body. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. 
Back to you. Thanks, Robert. Interesting, Diana. Don't you think it's quite good to hear in some ways that there may be things beyond our own genes that could help influence disease development? Maybe easy to tackle. I think people intrinsically know that. It's just it is, as they say, very difficult to study it at the present time. Um, But it is something people are moving towards doing more and more. I mean, I, I would worry about rushing at it because it's going to give us a lot of actually not particularly useful general conclusions which you know scare tactics and all those sorts of things arising from it no no question of the the scientific methodology of course of doing those sorts of studies but uh, i guess also you know arguably somewhat easier in theory if you have a neat targeted medicine to inject or to swallow as opposed to the huge behavioral changes or broader structural challenges that any individual patient could find still more difficult to overcome in tackling their disease risk yes but we're a long way from being able to model that So it would seem. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Clive will be back with you next week. But for now, thank you, Diana. Thank you, Clive, in Brussels. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Andrew Jack. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.